Um, welcome back to the Echolalia podcast. Um, I don't know why I pronounce it like that. Podcast. I think maybe it's a, maybe it's a defense mechanism. Maybe if I punch more in the second syllable, that's like a way of showing that I don't care or showing that I'm not scared of you guys. Um, of course there is no you guys. The you guys is me. And if I'm scared of myself then we have some bigger issues to tackle here at the Echolalia podcast. Um, today, uh, today's what, April 26th? April 26th. Um, and, you know, I was just looking around and on the internet and stuff, and, uh, you know, Trump said recently that he, should, he thinks people should start injecting Clorox into their veins as a way of trying to cure the coronavirus, which is an interesting tactic. Um, and people are very upset about that. People are really upset about it. People are like, you know, why is he saying these things? And I, and I, I understand why they're upset about it, because it's generally um, against most medical norms to drink bleach or uh, ingest disinfectant in any way, um, which is what he was advocating. But no one's really looking at what this actually means no one's thinking about the practical applications of the fact that he did this, which is that the only people who are really going to watch that press conference hear him say, you should in- inject disinfectant to cure your coronavirus are people who are his supporters and are probably, you know, going to do that anyway at some point and people that we don't really need on this planet. And maybe this is sort of a, a Darwinistic attitude. Maybe this is a little too, you know, um, a borderline uh, Republican in its lack of humane uh, care. But I really think that if having Donald Trump tell you to in- inject disinfectant is enough push to throw you off that cliff of doing it, of literally, you know, buying a syringe and going to Home Depot, looking for the right brand of disinfectant, you know, and seeing the price and putting it in the car and driving all the way back home and, and shooting up, then um, then you're probably going to do that anyway. And uh, it's best that you're not voting uh, this November. And that's just my thoughts on it. That's just my... And, you know, people would say, oh, but, you know, just because these people are stupid doesn't mean they deserve to die. But um, these people who are stupid also are, you know, they're, they're, they're killing other people. They're the people who want to open everything back up. They're the people who, who, who get coronavirus and want to go hang out with their friends because they think the whole thing's a hoax, you know. Um, so is it such a bad idea to tell those people to, to ingest, you know, disinfectant? Is it? I don't know. Um, it just doesn't seem like it might be the worst. It doesn't seem like it's going to be the worst thing in the world right now. Um, and also it's a great, you know, show your true colors moment. Um, it's sort of, you know, I don't know, the pro- it seems like it was prophesied in this whole, in the whole uh, Trump doctrine that eventually it would reach this point of him telling his followers to kill themselves a la, you know, Heaven's Gate. And uh, we've finally reached that, you know, climax of the movement. And if that's how the whole thing goes out, like the thing seems to be destined to burn out at some point anyway. And this seems like a relatively uh, tame way for it to burn out by they all just sort of, you know, poison themselves, right? Because the other ways that the whole like Trumpism movement could end is, you know, civil war, you know, uh, guns in the streets, uh, you know, like much more mass violence that affects a lot of people who have no, you know, who don't have any sort of affection for, for, for the president. Um, and so this seems like one of the most, like, you know, safe ways that the whole thing could, could peter out, which is that everyone who loves him just slowly sort of falls asleep um, while, you know, their mouth covered in blue disinfectant. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's just like sort of like, I mean, this sounds like I'm being very pessimistic and crude and, uh, you know, unforgiving of people who don't really know better. Um, but I, it's, it's really looking on the bright side in in a way, you know, it's me saying, Hey, look, let's look at this. Let's look at this from a, from a perspective of maybe this problem is solving itself, you know? Um, so yeah, I was looking at that. It just seems, it was just a crazy, uh, thing for people 
it's, it's just, you know, we've reached this point now, and this is, these are thoughts that everyone's having in their head. Everyone's having the thoughts of, like, how did we get to this point? How did we get here? You know, but doesn't it also feel somewhat fitting? Like, especially over the last four years, like, doesn't it seem like, all right, finally the, 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 the card, the, the house of cards is falling? Because for three years during this whole thing, things were going pretty well. The economy was doing well, and, you know, I mean, of course there was inhumane practices at the border and you know the the you know the political climate of the country was sort of falling apart and uh but you know we also had things like me too uh you know you're kind of getting justice on that end and uh i mean we pulled out of the climate accord so that's bad but it does feel like you know the whole thing was having this sort of like chaotic trajectory and now we've we've just reached the climax or we've reached the end of that of that uh of that railroad and uh so now we're all stuck in our houses while everything burns outside i don't know you guys are probably sick of hearing about you know my my apocalyptic um predictions for the whole world but i, I can't help but have them. and if you're listening to this and you're living during this time you're probably having them too you must be having them too because if you're not then you're not paying attention right you you gotta be if you're paying attention you can't see it any other, you know, end to this whole thing than, like, pretty much complete destruction and complete, you know, chaos. Well, maybe not. I don't know. It seems like we will get through this. I mean, people are already talking about opening things up. Everyone wants to open things up. You know, everyone's about, okay, we got to get this whole thing back. How do we, how do we revive the economy? How do we, how do we put oil in the engine to get the whole thing going again? Um, and I don't I mean, I don't have the answers. I'm not an economist. I don't have money. Um, so I'm the furthest thing from an economist. I have almost nothing to lose in the sense that I don't have money in, in the, I don't, I don't have a business. I don't have stocks. I don't have blah, 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 you know? Um, but one thing I have been thinking about is that, uh, you know, small businesses are going to be the most affected by this, right? They're going to be the people that have the hardest time, um, getting things, uh, moving again, like getting off the ground. And, uh, it sucks because, you know, after this, it's going to be very uncouth to not be donating at least 30% of your proceeds to charity. You know, like if you uh, go back into business and you're making any kind of money, people are going to criticize you if you're not, you know, giving away your money to, to, to charities. Even if you've been, you know, closed for months and you're, you've barely hit your bottom line and you're on a reduced workforce and you're just trying to, you know, your business is on life support. Um, people will say, oh my God, look how selfish they are because, you know, 30% of their proceeds aren't going to the United Way or the Boys and Girls Club or, you know, Girls Who Code. I mean, that would be... <laughs> What if I came out of this? What if you had a small business and you finally made enough money and then you're like, you know what? I'm going to, just so you know, uh, to drive more business, I want everyone to know that uh, 30% of our proceeds will be going to uh, Girls Who Code in the wake of the coronavirus. You know, now that everyone's been stuck inside, we're going to send all the money to Girls Who Code. Um, I guess it's not funny. You should send money to Girls Who Code. Um, you know, unless they're, like, working for... I mean, it would be great if Girls Who Code was, like, working for the NSA. And it was just, like, we want more women in uh, uh, IT. And we want more women, you know, writing the code to spy on you. And to, uh, you know, make to, to, to collect data on the entire American populace. Uh, regardless of whether they have a warrant or not. Um, so, you know... I guess don't give your money to Girls Who Code, or at least just be aware of where your money is going. Um, and I'm sorry for all those small businesses who don't have the money to, you know, give away to the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, or to, uh, you know, to, 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 what's that, uh, there's like some charity, that the whole point of the charity is like just buying goats for people in Africa. I forget what it's called. It's a British thing, but it's like you donate enough money and then we'll send a goat over to this farm in Africa. And it's like... Don't, don't they have goats? You know, isn't that like all they have there in Africa is goats? You know, we could cut that part out. Um, maybe that's not the best thing to say. Maybe that's not advisable in some sense. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I don't know. I'm just like, people are going stir crazy. I'm going stir crazy. I got nothing to say. I'm, I think I'm having trouble talking to my friends. I'm getting a lot of social anxiety. I have a, I have a strong sense that people dislike me or they don't want to talk to me just because I'm not being, you know, I'm not on house party 
talking to people every day when I'm not, I'm not setting up Zoom birthday calls. I went to a Zoom birthday call. Um, I went to two Zoom birthdays, and they're very strange because, you know, birthday parties, they don't work uh, the way that they do on Zoom. Birthday parties, there's a lot more, you know, people break off. Uh, every party works this way. You know, there's people talking in the kitchen. There's people talking in the living room. There's some people out back on the porch smoking a cigarette. They're talking there. You know, people break off into groups. Um, but on a Zoom birthday, it's basically like everyone tunes in to listen to the birthday person give a speech, you know? Because, uh, you know, everyone just goes, hey, what have you been up to? And everyone goes, nothing, I don't know, I haven't been doing anything, like the rest of us. And then we all go, wait, it's Audrey's birthday, Audrey, you know, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. And then you sing the whole song, and they're like, yay, yay, yay. And uh, they say, oh my god, a cake, because they baked themselves a cake, because no one could else could bake them a cake. So they go, oh, thank you so much. And they run off to their kitchen and bring back the cake that they baked for themselves. Um, and then they just sort of give a speech and we all go, how does it feel to be 22 years old? And they say, you know, oh, it's great. I feel so wise. And of course, 22 year olds know nothing. Um, 23 year olds know nothing. No one knows anything. Um, but we all are looking to this person whose birthday it is, who's having definitely the worst birthday of their entire lives that they will ever have. Um, you know, because the fucking world's falling apart and we're all going to listen to them, you know, reflect on the idea of a birthday in quarantine. Um, and Zoom birthdays are very strange, and I went to two of them. You know, it'd be better if, like, maybe people could, like, somehow, if you could have breakout sessions, like, at a convention or something, you know, you know, like, hotel conventions, uh, that are educationally minded, it's always like, oh, there's a big speech, and then we all go into our breakout sessions, and we sort of discuss what we've heard, um, and I wish there was a way to do that on Zoom. I think that would be cool. If I could just, like, pick my three favorite people from Gallery View and say, hey, let's all go over to this separate Zoom channel um, and just sort of talk shit about all the other people in the Zoom channel. That would be a more accurate simulation of a birthday, por- birthday party. You know, that would feel like a more uh, true translation of uh, real social dynamics into a virtual space. Um, but, you know, I don't think the technology is at that point yet. Um, technology is too focused on, you know, making AI that can guess your favorite song and then uh, create a Build-A-Bear from it and then you can make it your profile picture. Uh, you know, people are more focused on creating, uh, y- you know, sex toys that are that can also go protest while you're not using them, you know. Uh, so, you know, technology is not really going in the way that I think uh, it would make sense for it to go. It seems like it's more focused around uh, showing off than anything else. Um, but whoever comes up, you know, why are we not, I mean, people make this joke, it's sort of like a common joke that everyone makes, and it's sort of boring at this point, but every time science comes out with some new innovation that seems sort of crazy, or, you know, like a study that says, like, if you cut your toenails, uh, you're probably Jewish, or whatever those, you know, those dumbass studies say, everyone, you know, reads it and goes like, oh, this is what people were doing, instead of working on finding the cure for cancer, uh, and, you know, it's a joke that everyone makes, but it is, it is true, and whoever does find the cure for cancer, you know, it's going to be by someone who doesn't want to do that. It's going to be by someone who doesn't show off. And it might be the reason that we don't have the cure for cancer is that, you know, some, you know, poor scientist found it, some like little nebbish guy in a laboratory with glasses and, a, and you know, a receding hairline, you know, he put together the correct enzymes and, you know, mixed them together with, a, with the right stem cells in a, in a Cuisinart. And he found the cure for cancer indefatigable. Indefa- whoa. <laughs> indefatigably, I don't know if that's the right word, but the word I said before is definitely not the right word, uh, you know, he finds a cure for cancer, and he's just too shy to tell anyone about it, you know, uh, he doesn't want to, he, he doesn't want to stir the pot, he doesn't want to, you know, attract too much attention to himself, so he, he locks it in a drawer for a little while, um, you know, and he just says, well, let me make sure, or, 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 you know, no one wants to hear from me right now, I don't want to, I don't want to disturb you guys, but I did just find the cure for leukemia, and I could save thousands of lives, Meanwhile, the people who have no idea, who have, who will never reach that point of uh, intelligence or impact on human life, uh, you know, they're telling the whole world that they finally figured out a hair dye that doesn't, you know, strain the, that doesn't strain your follicles, you know, and they're the people who are getting all the attention for the dumbass work that they're doing. Meanwhile, you know, some, some, some nerd in a garage in Cupertino like Steve Jobs, uh, he's a, you know, he's, he's really doing the real work. Um, and, you know, this, I, God, 
for some reason, when I get really upset on this podcast, I start to sound like Woody Allen. And I want to be clear that that is the that, I don't I don't want to emulate him um, in any other way than you know his speech patterns um, because that's not where I uh, you know that's not where I I don't I don't want to I don't want to use him as my guide for behavior because he has poor behavior. Um, he's done a lot of things that I think are strange. My friend Max is reading his um, autobiography right now. The name is it's called Apropos of Nothing. And the, the the autobiography is um, it was the one that his son Ronan Farrow, um, his son like wrote a big op ed about you know how the publishing company shouldn't have picked it up because this guy doesn't deserve you know the last person we need to hear from right now is Woody Allen you know no one's looking for a career retrospective from a guy who married his daughter, um, and he really did he he does bring up a point there and I think the publisher did drop the book but then another publisher picked it up right quick because uh you know despite the fact we may not want. We may not need to hear from Woody Allen right now, but a lot of people want to hear just to see, you know, it's like if someone, you know, if we find out that someone, you know, in a crowd of people has a gun, um, but they're not using it and they just have it, everyone wants to go see, you know, wait, does that guy really have a gun? And, you know, you're looking at his belt to see if there's like an imprint of a Glock 45. Um, and that seems to be what uh, this book is about. And, you know, my, my friend Max is, is reading it and uh, it seems like he's divided it into thirds. Max is divided into thirds, and the first third is, you know, how Woody Allen got started in comedy. And he tells these long, boring stories about going up to the Catskills and working with 18 other Jewish writers like Sid Caesar and Mel Brooks and blah, 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 and all these people, you know. And they all got started doing, doing hotel comedy, you know. And that seems to be how things worked in the 40s and 50s, is that if you wanted to work in entertainment, what you did is you went to a resort and you wrote sketch comedy for um, aging, you know, for, 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 for aging wasps of the East Coast. Um, and that's how, you know, the best of the best got their start. And so that's the first third of the book. And then the second third of the book is, is, is Woody hitting his stride, you know, Wood, uh, he, you know, Manhattan, Annie Hall, Bananas, blah, 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 what, his other movies, he does other ones too, you know, and it's him finding out what he thinks is funny or what he thinks is, is, is entertaining. And apparently there's one story, and I know that it's coming off as if I've read this book and that I have like a real opinion on it, but I promise I'm getting all of this secondhand from my friend Max. And uh, apparently there's one part where after Annie Hall, um, you know, Annie Hall was nominated for, 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 for Best Picture. It's one of the only comedies to ever be nominated for the award. Uh, but basically, the Oscars happened. Woody doesn't go. He's never gone to the, to, the, to the Academy Awards. And the next morning, he picks up the paper and sees that he's won the Best Picture. And he just goes, oh. And then he puts it down and he continues his life and he goes, you know, and plays clarinet at that weird place and, you know, probably sits in the park with a pair of binoculars staring at the playground or whatever he does. Um, yeah, so that's the second third of the book. And the, 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 the home stretch, the third third, uh, seems to be a little more, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe I wouldn't say apologetic, but, but reflective, reflective on his personal life, reflective on, on the state of his legacy, you know, because he's got what, maybe 15 years left at most, 20, if you, if you, 20 with good behavior. And, um, so, you know, he's thinking about like, what is the imprint I'm going to leave in this world? You know, I have, you know, 40, 50, 60 good years of comedy, um, you know, and stuff, stuff that people can really admire and things that making art that people really find inspiring and has brought people through hard times. And then I have 20 years of marrying my daughter. Um, and you, you gotta wonder if, if that, if that exchange is really worth it from Woody's perspective, or if he just didn't, or if he just thought he would get away with it. Um, cause what's crazy is that he didn't even get away with it. You know, he wouldn't have got away with it now, especially with, you know, you know, now that we've reached the era of me too. And now that we're past, you know, basically just letting people do whatever the fuck they want, but he would, he didn't even get away with it then. This happened in the late nineties. You know, the other things that were happening were late nineties was, you know, extreme misogyny, you know, the hitched was a big movie in the nineties, I think, or maybe it was the early two thousands, but uh, he didn't even get away with it then. People, even then people were like, Whoa, what the fuck is going on over here? Um, you know, and so he has to wonder if like, oh, is that really worth it? And we have to wonder as, you know, purveyors and, 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 and eaters of cultural information, uh, you, you know, how, how, how great is it to be married to Soon Yi? 
Like, how great is that? If you're willing to, if you're willing to give up, you know, 60 years of career, if you're willing to have the entire world turn on you after being beloved for, you know, the large majority of your life, soon ye must have bomb pussy. <laughs> Sorry. You could hear me. I, that was not a joke that I would make. That was me trying on another type of joke, you know, putting on uh, uh, an attitude that I would never adopt myself. Um, but you know, that's one of the things you're going to be hearing. If you're really listening to this podcast and if I haven't given you an anxiety attack yet, you're going to hear me really trying things out. Um, you probably heard me even saying the word pussy. I, uh, I, you know, I, I flinched. I, 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 you know, my voice sort of recoiled in the, in the, in the, in the mere idea of saying that word. Um, and I know, you know, it's sort of become empowering now, but not for me. Uh, I don't find saying the word pussy to be empowering at all. And it's weird that the two groups, the two demographics of people that have started to, you know, really use this word commonly are uh, frat boys who, uh, you know, who regularly have women falling asleep on their laps and then, you know, some, untr- some you know, bad behavior, it, uh, you know, continues on. Um, and then, you know, outright feminists, you know, and like hot girl, hot girl comedians on Twitter. Um, it's just a strange Venn diagram of people who who love using the word pussy as much as they possibly can. I sort of find it doesn't roll off the tongue at all, um, and that's not a way of saying I don't. I don't eat pussy. I I I, I do, um, at least in terms of like I'm I'm capable of it. Um, I've considered it. I uh, I have you know thoughts on it, um, and they're all positive. But uh, when it comes to saying the word, it feels weird. It feels weird because feels weird because it feels like a swear, but it's also such a kind word, you know, it's sort of like, you know, there's nothing offensive about any of its syllables, it sort of has this, uh, this flowery, you know, it feels like it's blowing in the wind when you say it, but you also know how crude it is, and it's something that you can't really say in, uh, in polite society, uh, so it's a strange sort of, you know, uh, yin-yang of a word, you know, so, yeah, I don't know how I got on that point, but, um, Oh, it's stretched. Oh, stretching my shoulders. I've started, I've adopted a new technique of stretching, which is where I push my shoulders, or push my elbows to the side and my fists up in the air and I look like Hercules. Um, and then I just sort of like try and touch my shoulder blades together because I have a very bad shoulders and I have a very bad neck. And um, a lot of the upper third or fourth of my body is in some form of constant pain. It feels like the muscles are sort of just like roping themselves together or just like, you know, there's some sort of Gaza strip in my, uh, in my, in my, in, in my muscles. I wish I could have named a specific muscle there, but I really don't have um, a very, uh, I have an elementary knowledge of the muscle groups and of the body. Um, my anatomical education began and ended with the head bone is connected to the neck bone, um, which is connected to the shoulder bone, which I don't even think is the lyrics. And there's definitely not such a thing as the neck bone. You know, if you went to the doctor and you got an x-ray done, you put on that lead vest and everything, and they said, well, clearly the problem is over here with your neck bone. Uh, you get up and you walk out because that's not a doctor. You know, that's a, uh, that's a girl in her backyard who has a, you know, a Fisher Price um, doctor set, so I would leave that immediately. Um, but that's really all I know about the human body, and I also know the word tibula because it's great for Scrabble. Speaking of of Scrabble, um, I've been playing Words with Friends on my phone, um, and the thing about Words with Friends is that um, it really it really adopts itself into anyone's life. It can kind of just be it can be any it can be anything to anyone because you don't have to constantly be on it, right? You know, you'll get a notification here and there saying like, oh, it's your turn in this game against this stranger. Or, you know, uh, hey, you, this guy, you know, this person that you knew from college or that you knew from, from middle school and is the, the only other nerd who's still playing Words with Friends too wants you to make your move because it's been four days. Um, and that's what I really like about the app. But lately I've been playing this guy. Um, I just, you know, some random guy because it'll just match you up with someone if you want it to. And I have been playing with a guy named Gary Foo 92 And, you know, usually a couple hours will pass between moves. And so it doesn't take up that much time. And it's just so, sort of something that I can, 
you know, keep my brain a little sharp, you know, thinking about different words and learning new words as much as I can. Um, but this guy, whenever I play a move, he responds within 45 seconds. Um, and it becomes more like real Scrabble than it does as this sort of like passive thing that, you know, enters and exits your life periodically throughout your day. And um, Gary Fu, I, you know, I looked at his profile and you could see his like overall stats. And, you know, in terms of his overall game, he's leagues ahead of me. You know, his win rate is much higher than me. His, you know, word, his, his, his points per word is much higher than mine. But for some reason in this game, I'm creaming him. I'm creaming him bad um, to the point where, you know, I almost got bored of it because every time he would, he would play, I, I'd of course have to play back, you know because I, I maybe I, I mean I suppose I could just like wait I could wait a few hours um that's what I'm doing right now and then take my turn but when you play and then 15 seconds pass and then immediately another word shows up you get tempted you gotta like oh well touche you know let me play my word um and it becomes more of like a, a, a tick for tact um a tic-tac-toe um a kit cat um in a in a in a in a big bat right um that's you know a little bit of freestyle rapping going on right there but um yeah i'm creaming him in this game for whatever reason and i and i the, the move i just played was at that point i was about 100 points ahead of him and, um, you know, when you play a word in Words with Friends too, there's this little bar that uh, fills up to show you how, where it ranks on the scale of the words you could be playing that'll get you the most points versus the word that you're playing right now. So when I uh, was playing around for a little bit and I could only find words that I hit about like the 60% of my possible points meter, and I was like, I don't want to play a 60% thing. And in fact, I'm going to let this guy catch up. And I played a three-letter word by using only one of my own letters from my own rack, and I made made uh oo which is a word apparently two so i put a t in front of a t o o and that was a two point word and now i'm waiting to get his move back to see you know maybe you know maybe this is an opportunity for him to catch up if he plays his cards right he could even you know he could he could even surpass me you know a hundred point words are not are not so uncommon you know it happens in these in these bobby fisher levels of scrabble that i these circles that i tend to that I tend to run in, um, or at least I like to think I run in. So, uh, yeah, that's that's that that's going on in my life. Um, and before that, the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, I just watched this video uh, that was called. It's from Vanity Fair, and Vanity Fair is great because they've really seen the the slow death. You know, they've really been hearing the death rattle of print magazines. And so they've really taken an effort to create interesting content for their YouTube channel. Um, so they have that, you know, that that, that uh, lie detector test video, you know, thing. Uh, and then they have this other thing called Screenplayed, which is where they take real-life stories of people that they interview. And they sort of um, take those stories because they're very extraordinary stories. And they create the movie version of them. And um, I just watched one about this FBI agent, and it was about him and his crew, and they were setting up a uh, fake meeting in Italy, a fake drug deal meeting at the 30th floor of this luxury condominium with um, several of the most high-level players in the El Chapo, uh, you know, uh, cartel group. There's a name, I think it's the Sinaloa, that's what they call the Sinaloa cartel, that's the one that Chapo was running. And this was back in 2010. And so he starts telling the story. And, and while he's telling the story in the video, uh, every once in a while, it'll like cut to someone, you know, writing on a typewriter. And so he'll just be like, yeah, we went to this condominium and uh, it was really high up and I was dressed in the purple bathrobe. And so then it'll go and it'll go interior, you know, condo uh, day. And it'll be like Brian 60s, you know. Uh, Oakley shades and a vibrant purple, uh, you know, bathrobe steps out onto uh, onto the porch. A beautiful vis, you know, a beautiful vista of of Sicily in front of him. Uh, the behind him, the, the the other agents are tense, you know, and so it'll write his his life story as if it's a movie, um, which I think is uh, you know, it's cool, but it's cool, but there's there's a sort of it's with this video specifically. Um, there is an unfortunate reality that we're all sort of uh, looking past. There's a blind spot that no one's thinking, which is that um, if his life were a movie, he would be the bad guy. You know, people aren't rooting for the... I mean, I guess there are... You know, in the 
Narcos, sure, and other shows, but, you know, people are rooting, people don't root for the police in, in movies and shows like this. Movies about criminals, movies about drug dealers, you're rooting for the drug dealer privately, you know, and even though you see them doing horrible things, you know, you see them stepping on a guy's hand because he, because he said the wrong thing, or you see, them, you know, someone curb stomping their their underling because he, because he, he, he looked at his wife wrong, you know. Um, you're, those are the people that you're rooting for, and the people that you're not rooting for are the DEA agents, you know? And so this guy's telling his life story as if he's the hero, but we all know implicitly that he would be the villain, and uh, we would really be entering the scene from the perspective of the drug dealers who don't know that they're being set up, and, you know, we would really be from, you know, the you of the scene would be, uh, you know, an international cartel leader. Um, and this guy who's telling the story in this video, this, you know, fat sort of, uh, you know, Long Island, he looks like Mario. He literally looks like Mario if he, you know, got addicted to fentanyl. Um, and, uh, you know, that would be the villain. And there would be a moment where, where the cartel guy sort of looks up into the corner and sees one of the cameras that isn't as properly hidden as it should be. And uh, he finds an excuse to get out and we start hearing the drum beat, you know, go up faster, faster, faster. Because um, we start realizing that this whole thing is a sting and that our protagonist, the murderous drug dealer, is uh, in danger. So that's what I was thinking as I was watching this. And um, I hope, you know, I hope I, I, if anyone from Vanity Fair is, is listening to this, I want you to delete that video because it gives, it gives people the wrong impression. Um, it gives them the impression that it's cool to be a cop, um, but it's not. And uh, that's something, that's a fact that we're losing sight of, especially now because we have entered a new golden age of snitching, you know. Uh, I, I even, I have to resist the temptation to snitch, you know. Sometimes I'll be driving around to go do errands, to go to, to, to go get groceries or whatever, and I'll pass by a park and there's like 70 people in the park, you know, and are they social distancing? No, you know, everyone's trying to maintain a, a six-foot radius around them, but it's not happening, you know. It's, you know, you're, you're, they're stepping in and out, you know, there's germs being spread, and I, it takes every part of me to not immediately call the police and say, hey, these people are going crazy, you know. There's, there's a, there's, there's a, the, 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 the cases are about to spike because of this family having a picnic. Um, and I want to, you know, I, 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 but I know, you know, it's not cool to snitch. You know, it's never been cool to snitch. It never will be cool to snitch, even in the most dire of circumstances, you know. Um, but, you know, people do it. Uh, and those people there, I, I, you know, I can't help, I can't fault them because I have the same inclination. You know, people who, who call the police because their neighbors are having a barbecue with the other neighbors and there's 12 people there. I'm like, yeah, I would also call the police in that situation, except I wouldn't, but I would want to. Um, and it's almost like as if, uh, you know, I'm watching a sort of Larry David person, you know, someone who doesn't really care about the norms of society or being liked by anyone, um, really doing the things that I wish I could do um, if I weren't so uh, afraid of being disliked. So yeah, snitching is a snitching is a bad thing. Um, you shouldn't be snitching, but if you do, I applaud you uh, because you're probably doing the right thing ultimately. In fact, uh, last night I was on a Zoom call with a couple of my friends from high school, and uh, you know there's a certain for the three or four of them that I really keep in touch with a lot, um, and then there's a couple others that I barely talk to. You know I haven't talked to them in years, and uh, you know. Those two friends joined the Zoom joined the Zoom call late, and uh, they're not brothers or anything. But they were in a car together, you know, rolling a joint, preparing to smoke up, to smoke up, you know. And um, I was like, you know, I I clocked that I clocked that internally. I was like, oh, they probably shouldn't be doing that. But then my other friend Sergey goes, uh, oh, you guys aren't social distancing, and uh, you know it's sort of ignored, and we move on with the conversation, a very boring conversation, during which I found out that you know these friends who I've lost touch with are you know pursuing their dreams and becoming pharmacists. Um, oh man, that was actually really hard because one of them, you know, that was a sarcastic thing that I just said. This one kid who I used to be friends with, who actually was really mean to me in middle school, but then we became friends. Uh, his whole thing, you know, he was gonna be a basketball player, and he was really good, and he worked really hard. 
Um, you know, and in our brains, it was all like, he is going to be a basketball player. And if it wasn't the NBA, then he would go to Europe to play for, you know, Lithuania, where you can make good money playing against, you know, these troglodytes of Eastern Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, we were really rooting for him privately. I, of course, had never talked to him, so I didn't really know what the fuck was going on. But I was rooting for him. And then I, you know, f- we're, we're talking now again after years and years. And uh, he's going to grad school for pharmacy. And I was like, wow, what a brutal, like, slap in the face of reality. You know, this poor guy who, who, who had worked for so long and, you know, who had, who had wrapped so much of, of his identity around becoming a basketball player has now been met with the unfortunate reality that he's five foot ten. You know, and his the people he's competing with are six foot six, right? And that's what sucks about sports, you know, is that there's even less people say, you know, acting or like writing or singing. Those are the most those are the the, the most crushing things to pursue. Um, but I, I disagree with that strongly. I really think it's sports because in sports. Um, uh, you dedicate your entire college career to it if you're going to college, which you probably are for it. Uh, you know, you're, 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 not, you're taking classes in Swahili. You're, you're, you're botching your major. You're really learning nothing except how to get really good at the sport in the hopes that by the time you've graduated, you'll be recruited and you can go play sports for 10 years where you're making like a million dollars a year. Um, but if you, so that really means that you're, there's about a four to six year period where you can make it. And after that, that's it. There's nothing else after that. You know, you never hear about, uh, you know, basketball players finally getting drafted at the age of 35. No, it doesn't happen. You're getting drafted at 23 because that's when you're going to be in your prime. And so if it doesn't happen for you then, boom, your dreams have just been crushed. You know, the the Thanos has just snapped his fingers and everything that you've worked for for your entire life has just dissolved into sand. Um, and that's that seems like a brutal way to live. Um, and also, you know, you you have nothing to fall back on because you've dedicated so much of your life to that thing. And so, my friend, he's doing pharmacy. He has no interest in, in being a pharmacist. He's not even he. This man, like, how could he even claim to, to, to be involved or to have any sort of dedication to the field of medicine if he's sharing a joint with his friend right now who he knows has a family member with coronavirus? is living in the house with someone with coronavirus, and this is the guy who wants to go to grad school to give people medication. I will never go to that CVS if he starts working there. Not because I don't like him, but because I don't trust him as a medical professional. Um, and that's not his fault. That's because he was sold a lie as a young child that he would eventually grow tall enough to become a basketball player. Um, and he was sold the even harsher reality that if you work hard at something, you can be better than the people who are naturally gifted at it. Um, and maybe that's true for some people but it really was it's not true for so many others and it was not true for him and uh poor amani craddock i guess i'm just saying his name out loud uh was uh, was forced to give up on his dream because of something that um because of of, of a lie that he was sold because of, of a bridge he pledged to buy um and he never came up with the money and I feel bad for that kid, but I also think he's really funny and he's really cool. And this is me really covering my bases in the in the in the event that he ever listens to this, which he will not. He will not listen to this. Um, I don't I mean no one's ever gonna listen to this. But um, he, you know, he's a good kid and he's really funny. And in the way, I think that if I spent a lot of time with him, he, I would have more in common with him than I do with a lot of the other people in my friend group. Um, uh, you know, I'm not trying to, 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 to diss anyone else, but, you know, since going to college, things have changed. You know, we all sort of found out individual versions of ourselves, and those versions don't necessarily mesh in a way that they used to. And that's okay. We still do talk. We are still friends. Everyone still gets along because we've been through so much together. You know, we'll never get to the point that we can't talk to one another. Um, but there's certain people that I really get along with more, and there's certain people that I don't get along with as much because we just can't you know, I, I, you know, they, we, we, we don't meet in the middle, conversationally speaking. Um, uh, God, I don't know why I burp so much in this podcast. Maybe it's because if you talk really fast for a really long time and you get your lungs moving and whatever, uh, maybe it just makes you want to burp. And uh, that's something, you know, I'm working with the same level of, of professional experience, professional medical experience that the president is when he's telling you to, 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 to drink bleach. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, that's kind of, uh, 
that was on my mind last night. It was a strange Zoom call because once I once 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 they hung up, I was talking to my other friend, and he's really upset about. He was really upset at the fact at the fact that they're not social distancing because you know especially that one of them has a father with a confirmed case of coronavirus and is then going around to deal weed and smoke with his friends. You know that's gonna be the single reason that you know that that coronavirus spikes in that particular county of Hudson Valley, New York. Um, of course, you know, in that county, there's also the large Orthodox population, and that's actually where most of the coronavirus cases are, have, have been found, um, because the Orthodox, they live very close to one another, um, and their homes are their places of worship, so they actually don't pay any property taxes, because they say, oh, you know, my pews are my living room, and my altar is the TV, you know, and is what I'm saying anti-Semitic? Yeah, very much, um, but I I don't hold those feelings. It's in an it's an inadvertent anti-Semitism, um, and it also annoys me that they're not paying property taxes. Um, you know, if you're trying to counter the stereotype of your people, finding a way around paying the only tax that pretty much everyone does have to pay is uh, not a good way to do that. You know. Like, at least sort of, like, make an effort to show that you're not the thing that everyone thinks you are, you know? It's like, you know, people think what? The people people think, I mean, people I say, you know, when I say people, I mean, like, you know, the conspiracy theorists of the internet or, you know, white nationalists. But people think that the Jews control the media and they control the banks. And um, that's why the head of Chase, that's why his name is Jamie Dimon and not Leonard Alfredstein, you know? Um, even if that, even if Leonard Alfredstein is actually the one pulling the strings from behind, at least the face of the thing is a guy who looks like Howard Hamlin from Better Call Saul, um, you know. So I, at least there, there's an effort being made there to counter those stereotypes. Um, versus the Orthodox of of the Hudson Valley region, who are making no such effort. Um, and in fact, the region that I'm talking about is the one where that Orthodox uh, rabbi was stabbed in his home like eight times by some, you know, raging lunatic who was mad that Jews had pushed him out of his neighborhood. Um, because that's the thing that they that, 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 that is underreported about that whole case is that there's a history in that neighborhood. And it was actually delved into on an episode on two episodes of This American Life, which is that the Orthodox community basically moved into this uh, lower income neighborhood filled, filled with filled with people of color. And they started buying a property and they started and basically they mobilized their vote to the point that they took over the school board of the local of the public schools. And they basically gradually turned it into a yeshiva and uh, they started, you know, making cutbacks to the point that, you know, students would have six study halls in a day and then one period of math because there was nothing for them to do there. And then eventually the schools would shut down and in its place, um, a yeshiva would pop up. And if you don't know what a yeshiva is, it's a it's a Jewish school school um you know it's an orthodox school really um where you know boys are taught math and girls aren't or they're only taught math up to the seventh grade so you know that had been going on forever and people were trying to fight it they were trying to you know retain their plate and they, you know people were trying to keep their kids in school they wanted their kids to go to the public school but um you know the power of the influx of orthodox jews was just too much to overcome so all of that had been happening for like eight or not for for decades literally for decades and now um you know then you see this guy you know storming this this rabbi's house i think on a jewish holiday um and just stabbing him to death and people only hear that part of the story should he have done that of course not we shouldn't be stabbing each other when he each other's homes um that is unless you want to have a podcast made about you but uh you know th that's an important part of of, of of the story is everything that had led up to that um and you know that's not to excuse what the guy did or to say that it was the right thing or to even you know you know cast doubt on the notion that that was just a tragedy because it was but um to know everything that led up to it is the is to really grasp the story in its entirety and of course i've described it to you now in a loose detail i've sort of given you the brief overview you know i'm basically you know i'm basically the pilot on this american airlines flight saying if you look to your left that's wisconsin um and then giving no further detail than that but i'm 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 shooting from the hip here and i i i i know the basics and i know that that what i've just said is is if not in detail is spiritually true right so um yeah i don't know how i got on that topic i should probably refrain 
from, uh, you know, discussing anti-Semitism in the Hudson Valley region um, because it's a hot, it's a hot topic. So hot that Ira Glass came a couple times to, 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 to see what was going on. Um, Ira is a, Ira is a friend. Ira, you know, Ira and I had a great couple weekends in Cabo together. Um, you know, we would rent a hotel together, uh, you know, separate rooms, um, but attached so that there was a door between us. And, uh, when he wasn't working on the podcast, uh, we would be going out to the beach and we would be tanning and we would be, you know, going on tours of the, of the local, of the local area and we, you know, there was great brunch that was delivered to our rooms every morning. And I would, you know, we would eat it in his room or we would eat it in my room. Every morning he would have the same thing, which is a grapefruit with brown sugar and orange juice. And then a small bowl of Weetabix, um, the, the British cereal, which he would have imported. Um, if he couldn't get it imported by the hotel, he would bring it himself in his suitcase, which was always uncomfortable because he would get pulled over at TSA and they would say, sir... You can't bring this, you know, full box, this full family-sized box of British cereal with you. And he would say, do you know who I am? And they would say, no, but you sound familiar. And he would say, yeah, that's the, he would say, yeah, I do sound familiar. It's the voice of the woman who, of the man who, who speaks to your wife. And the only thing that keeps her happy, you know. And uh, he would really sort of get in their heads um, from a class perspective. And they would eventually let him through. And he would shove that box back into his, into his rolling suitcase and say, you know, all right, I got him. I showed those people once again. And I would say, don't say those people in that way because, you know, they're, 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 there's, you know, we all know what's at play at the TSA. We all know the racial dynamics of going through security. Um, and they're not great. And you, Ira Glass, who the patron saint of uh, NPR progressivism, should not be, you know, berating a TSA agent if you don't want to be canceled by the people who have made you that way, who have made you the saint that you are, by the people who have canonized you. Um, and, um, so, you know, then we'd get on the plane and he would sit first class and he would buy up two seats. He'd buy up the seat next to him because he likes to have empty space. You know, he's a Jewish, he leaves, Jewish guy, he leaves, leaves a seat for Elijah, um, and everywhere he goes. So he buys up the seat next to him. And, you know, he would also see like a Marine going to war and, you know, a traditional thing to do with when, a, when you see a Marine going to war or someone, you know, someone like that on a plane is that you offer them up your seat if you have a first class seat. Um, and he didn't do that. In fact, he said, you know, as he would, he would sort of, you know, give snake eyes to the Marine as they walk through the aisle. And then he would uh, take out a sheet of loose leaf and he would scrawl something on it. And uh, then he would tape it to the seat next to him. And uh, it would say, uh, no soldiers allowed, you know, and he would just say, put, put, don't put any soldiers here because I don't like soldiers. Um, and, you know, maybe that's why, maybe that's what people, people love that. The NPR audience really loves that. They love to see the troops really get, you know, get really, he, they really want Ira to let the troops have it. Um, and so he carries that with him everywhere he goes. And um, if you're listening to this and you think that this is all true, then that's great. And I want you to, you know, spread these stories, you know, say that I'm not lying. Say that these are say that these are things you've heard. Say that you have a personal connection to these stories. Just change my name out with, you know, your cousin who uh, who who have had these experience, because I would love if it became a sort of, you know, uh, 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 among certain circles, it's just known that uh, Ira Glass is a raging, uh, self as a self-loathing anti-Semite, and um, you know, a, a a traitor to our nation, and he he he, you know, stuff like that. Because he's also the other thing about Ira is that he steals valor on a regular basis. You know, he'll he'll regularly, you know, he ordered some um, purple heart patches from eBay, and they look pretty realistic, and he sort of just sewed them onto all of his. Uh, all of his Brooks Brothers suits, um, which is strange because, he, I mean, he didn't even do the research to know that that's not where Purple Hearts go and that uh, I actually believe the Purple Heart is a metal, um, but he doesn't really know that. And he said, you know, let me take these patches. Let me sew them onto them. I want people to think that I fought in the war and that I sacrificed something. 
And, you know, and if, and if if people aren't buying that because they know that he's Ira Glass and that he didn't do that because he's, you know, a well-known guy, he'll 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 sort of put on some makeup and change his face around and then also wear, you know, a, a, a digital camo hat and he'll, he'll he'll sit in a wheelchair is what he'll do. I, I, I was sort of beating around the bush there, but he he'll he'll sit in a wheelchair and he'll have his 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 mother roll him around just so that he could get thank you for your service comments from uh, people passing by him on the street because that's really the opposite of what he is. He's generally sort of this smarmy, uh, you know, raconteur of the radio waves. Um, and so he sort of moonlights as this uh, Rambo figure um, because that's what he really desires more than anything else is to be admired by, uh, to be admired by military veterans. Um, and, you know, again, if you're listening to this and you're thinking that anything of what I've said about this is true, I really want you to take that ball and run with it. Post it on Reddit. Post it on Vine. You know, Vine is dead, but create a new Vine. Put it on there. You know, um, bombard news outlets with anonymous tips that Ira Glass is stealing valor in the airport. Um, you know, I really want his image to be... Um, sort of destroyed in the way that Bill Murray, you know, the way that we all know the story about Bill Murray with, uh, you know, stealing a French fry off of a guy's plate and then, you know, whispering into his ear, no one will believe you uh, because what a crazy story it would be to say that Bill Murray came and, you know, nicked a French fry from your from your side of of, of palm frites. You know, we all know that story. It's been traded around, even though it's not posted a lot, even though there's not, you know, it's not in any books. I want it to be, I want that, I want this, this story about Ira Glass to be like that, where, you know, everyone's heard something about Ira Glass um, being in a wheelchair and uh, selling purple hearts onto all, of, onto all of his clothes so that, so that people will, will, will think that he's a national hero, but he's not. Um, and, you know, because I think, I mean, I don't, and I have nothing personal against Ira Glass. I think he's a, he's a nice guy, it seems. I, I like his voice. I know that some people find it annoying, but I like the way he says Ekwan. You know, I like the way that he never pronounces his T's. I like the way that he sort of will just like, he has that Michael Barbaro speech pattern, or rather Michael Barbaro has the Ira Glass speech pattern, where they'll say like, you know, the first two words of a sentence like this, and then they'll finish the rest of the sentence really fast, you know? They'll kind of just, like, ask a question, like, so do you see a way out of this for the future, you know? And they've kind of adopted each other's speech patterns, um, and, uh, you know, I like that about Ira Glass. I think that he's he's a smart guy, and I think that he's a great storyteller, and I look up to him in many ways. Um, but I think the best way to, you know, but in many ways, it's, it's Jungian in a way. It's like what Carl Jung said, um, which is that, you know, uh, uh, for a boy to truly become a man, he must kill his father. So I feel that as another prominent radio personality, the best way for me to finally uh, grow into the man I want to be, to grow into my success, is by killing my proverbial father by um, spreading the rumor that Ira Glass steals valor on a regular basis. Um, where are we at? We are at 52 minutes. That's the perfect amount of time. Enough space for ads. Um, all right. I will talk to you guys later. Um, if you have any questions, you can email them to me at wyres1 at gmail.com. Please don't dox me. Please don't sign me up for, you know, whatever. ISIS for the ISIS newsletter because I don't want to be put on any lists any more than I already am. Um, and yeah, I would love to hear from you guys. Um, there is no one to hear from because this podcast is just for me and it'll never be listened to by anyone. But um, yeah, all right. I will talk to you later. Uh, have a wonderful afternoon. Um, try jerking off at 3 p.m. and then doing dinner with your parents afterwards because it's a very interesting sensation. All right, bye-bye.